It is uh, good to be with you this morning. Uh, today is an exciting day, not just because we are gathered, but also Whitworth graduation today. So um, I get to head up there afterwards. I'm excited about that. As my oldest is about to graduate. Uh, don't do the math on that, but um, it is exciting. Uh, this morning, we are continuing in the Paradox series, and uh, we've been kind of considering these what seem to be juxtaposed ideas uh, that are callings of us as followers of Jesus. And uh, this morning is not necessarily one of like what you would consider one of the more sexier topics. It is serve and be served. And uh, when I was assigned serve and be served, I'll be honest, there's a part of me that was like, oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, the more that I have dove into it, the more excited I have been to talk about this idea of what it means to live in the tension of being people who serve and are called to serve, and then being people who are called to be in community and be served by the community. And uh, to begin looking at this paradox, that it would be important that we start with the idea of God, which seems like a pretty logical place to start any idea when you begin wondering about is with the concept of God. Um, we have a couple slides which may or may not be present. Oh, they're present? They're going to work? Great. Uh, the first one is just a picture of Trinity, right? God exists in perfect Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, as many of you know, this perfect image of the Trinity of God is Mutual, self-sacrificial, perfectly loving, perfectly affirming each other in the relationship. There are no needs, no lack, nothing that uh, is anything other than perfect unity and perfect love. That is the descriptor of who we understand God to be in this beautiful dynamic. A lot of artists even describe it as a dance among the Trinity where each is uh, dancing together in perfect unity. And we know, as the text tells us, that uh, God decided to include us in this beautiful dynamic. Uh, the text tells us that uh, God said, let us make man in our image, the image of the Trinity, and uh, then in our likeness, and then he made us, and we were brought into relationship with God. And so Trinity is connected to us, and we are connected to God. And God, the text tells us, was in deep relationship. There was this beautiful communion between God and man, and then it became clear and evident that that wasn't enough, that there was something lacking. The text goes on to say that God in Trinity said, it's not good for man to be alone. Let us create a helper, a partner, someone to meet that need. And God created the other. And so we have this beautiful picture again of a new trinity, the trinity of God, Father, and Holy Spirit, where we as us individually and others collectively have been brought into a new trinity. The reason I bring it up is this dynamic relationship of trinity between God and us and the other in many ways, I believe, is the framework for how we understand all of relationship in the world. It is the way that we live into what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're not in this 
trinity of relationship, you cannot fulfill, as the scriptures say, the two greatest commands that sum up the whole law. This idea that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And this idea, this idea of us being in a space where we live in the paradox between being served and serving, finds itself tucked into this illustration or to this imagery of a beautiful dynamic relationship. And what I want to do this morning is look at two passages in the scriptures that I think speak into this. The first one being about this idea of who God is and how God relates to us. So in Acts chapter 17, we have this amazing picture of who God is. Paul He's making his way around, and he's hanging out with the people of Athens. And uh, it says he's going throughout the city, and he sees thousands of idols, synagogues, places of worship, places to interact with and um, make sacrifices to deities. And as he makes his way around the city, he gets to this point where the text tells us, he says, men of Athens, he's speaking to all the people in that particular either synagogue or marketplace. And he says to all of them, you have so many gods, I see that you are very religious. I see that you have this desire for the spiritual. And you even have an idol to an unknown God. And I want to tell you about that God. It's this beautiful picture. And then he describes God, who we would call Yahweh. And he makes this statement. In Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. And what we have in these verses are a few understandings about who God is. Paul starts off and says, He's Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples. So he's talking to a group of people that have all these shrines, all these places of worship, and he says, our God, the unknown God, does not fit in this equation. He doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. He's not, as the Greeks imagined, a God that is in one fixed place at one moment in time and not anywhere else simultaneously. We understand him to be the God of the heavens. Now, I think when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we kind of get this part a little bit wrong. We're used to repeating our Father who art in heaven. And when we say that, I think often, that might not be true of you, but often our projection of what that means is God is in a fixed place, in heaven, beyond, out there, localized, overseeing everything, but not close and present. The word really is heavens, from which we get the understanding that he is all around us, everywhere, at the same moment, in and all things, and everywhere. That is our God, this God who art in the heavens, in the space all around us. And this is our God, and the text goes on to say that he's not served by human hands, as though he would need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything else. What Paul defines for us in this is that God does not require any of our service. 
He doesn't need it. He doesn't need anything. If we were today to stop ever serving God, giving him anything, offering him anything, he wouldn't lack, he wouldn't starve, he wouldn't have needs, he wouldn't sit around going, oh man, that feels like such a void. Because he doesn't need it. He doesn't. He is always the giver and never the receiver in the relationship, unless he opens himself to receive. It's this beautiful picture, but in some ways, it is powerfully a reminder of who the Trinity is. Some even allude that Paul is taking this turn of phrase to say that this is God in Trinity form by saying that he gives life, God, and breath, spirit, and everything else, Jesus. He's referring even in this very moment to this idea that he is all those things. But what is most powerfully stated in this idea is a reminder of the gospel. Because God is not served by human hands. This is probably the worst news and the best news in all of the world at the exact same time. And what I mean by that is, it is the worst news to any of us who feel self-sufficient, who feel morally in sync with God, who feel like we can, of our own will and volition, offer to God whatever it is he needs to serve him in whatever way we feel equipped to be independent, even to earn favor, to somehow please him because of what we do. I mean, Paul is really speaking into this moment because I think Paul's whole identity prior to really understanding who Jesus was, was to hang his identity on his service, his badges, his religious ability, his self-sufficiency, his ability to say, I've kept all the law. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I'm a leader in the religious community. I'm better than all my contemporaries. Of all the Jews, I'm the best. Of all, like he just starts going through this litany of things that he's unbelievable at as it relates to faith or to Jesus or to religion. And God goes, yeah, but I'm not served by human hands as if I would need anything. So to Paul, it was some of the worst news you could get because he was trying to figure it out on his own. But to others, it's the best news in all the world, right? It is the news that God is not served by human hands and needs anything. It is the essence of the gospel that when we are weak, he is strong. That when we have nothing to offer, he is like, great, you didn't need anything in the first place. It is the best of news to know that God is the kind of God who cannot be served but loves to serve. That God is always the giver and the supplier in the relationship. And that he opens up this Trinitarian relationship to us. That is the best of news. That is the good news. And Jesus then, as we know, comes to model this very same idea to us. It says this in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. At a moment in which you go, well, there's this divine human opportunity for us to serve God in tangible human incarnated form. He goes, even in that moment, I didn't didn't come to be served. I came to serve. A reminder again of the gospel. And what I want to do is to take that passage in Mark and go a little bit further with us and have us do a little bit of reflection as to how do we live in this paradox of serving and being served. So if you have your Bible and want to turn to Mark 10, you can. The text will also be on the screen. And the text reads this way. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, which generally is not how you want to start a conversation with the Almighty. Like, hey, do whatever I ask, all right? Are we good with that? Is that how we... Um, And then it goes on to say, and he said to them, "Um, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. So the disciples come with this request. Give us the number one and number two seats in all of the kingdom. That's a bold ask. It is a posture of self-promotion. It's a posture of only focusing on their desires, of putting themselves in this story at the center of all the disciples. Like all these other guys who've been walking with you for years, you know, like let's make us number one and two of them even. But this is even bigger. It's a posture of saying like, not just with that group, but like the whole kingdom. How about one and two? You like that idea? Is this good for you, Jesus? And Jesus is trying to, in the midst of all this, establish what it means to look like the kingdom on earth. He's setting up kingdom values. He's reminding them of what it means to be true disciples and followers. And in this moment, the disciples want the absolute opposite of everything the kingdom stands for. And if you think about it, much of the strife and the tension that is often unresolved within the church centers around the same concept. And even James speaks to this idea when he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within? You kill, you covet, you desire, you want. And even the things you want and you ask for, you do not receive because what you want is just selfish. James is speaking into that in the life of the church and saying, man, that is where things have begun to go awry. When we as disciples try to figure out how to make us the center of the story. So I want to give you a few reflection questions, and you can either just take a picture of these or they'll be sent out in the loop. We won't take a time to reflect on them, but more or less just to um, reveal them to you. A couple questions about this first idea. How we enter, how we enter The church shapes our experiences of the church. How are you entering the faith community, entering your small group, entering the people you're in relationship with? What expectations do you carry that color your experience of the family of God? We talked a week ago about how expectations and love cannot coexist. 
If you come with expectations, you're strangling other people to what it is you want. And then what are the demands, expectations, requests like the disciples you are asking of the community and do those expectations need to change? And if so, how? I would encourage you in small group and with friends and uh, in relationship, discuss these, interact on these, think on this. The text goes on to say that Jesus said to these two disciples, do you not know what you, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Very confident. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or to my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus kind of retorts and says, well, can you drink the cup? And they with absolute boldness go, yeah, absolutely, right? And uh, cup obviously is this common Old Testament phrase, which is a metaphor for suffering. Can you handle the pain you're about to experience? Can you walk through the grief in which you'll have to walk? Can you handle what life will throw at you? and what it means to follow me. And they flippantly say, yes. And so he says, okay, you will drink the cup. In many ways, I think that phrase is pretty central to this idea of service and what it means to be in a community. See, as a community of followers of Yahweh, we are called to drink the same cup, be baptized with the same baptism, to experience the same pain, to weep with those who weep, to bear one another's burdens. There are all these messages throughout the followings of Jesus to say, you're in this together. Yesterday, I had a really cool moment um, to be out on the soccer field, and I went to watch a game. A bunch of kids playing, hanging out sat down first half and just got to observe and have fun, enjoy the weather. It was before the rain, and it was great. It's fantastic. And many of you know that for me is like a sacred space. It's this space where I feel like there's closeness between God and myself. And often that sacred space turns into a thin space. And those of you that are familiar with that term, it's where there's just this like, very thin space between heaven on earth. And that usually is centered on not just how you feel about it, but how others are connected to it. And so yesterday I was sitting there and uh, the first half goes by and I'm having a great time and I stand up for second half. And uh, all of a sudden this lady that I know in the community that's not connected to this church, but it's part of another community, the city, uh, just walks up to me and then begins to tell me her story of cancer and how she's been battling it. And, um, and I had known and we had been texting back and forth over this last year and I hadn't seen her in a while and she wanted to give me the update. And so we talked. We spent all of halftime hanging out and second half started. And as soon as she said goodbye, this other lady comes over and I hadn't seen her in a while. 
And she began to unfold the story of her uh, impending divorce and the lies and the affairs and the tension that her family, and she's trying to hold it all together. And it was a chance to weep with those who weep, to give her a hug and to be in that space with her. And that sacred space became this thin space where I had the honor of just trying to hold that with her and to encourage both of them. And it is in those moments that I am reminded of the deep significance of the community of faith. I'm reminded of the many times that this community has carried me and the many times that you have carried each other. That as a community, we are called to serve, to love, to bear one another's burdens. Francis Weller makes this statement that I think is so profound. Imagine the feeling of relief that would flood our whole being if we knew that when we were in the grip of sorrow or illness, our village would respond to our need. This would not be out of pity, but out of a realization that every one of us will take our turn at being ill and we will need one another. The indigenous thought is that when one of us is ill, all of us are ill. Taking this thought a little further, we see that healing is a matter in great part of having our connections to the community and the cosmos restored. This truth has been acknowledged in many studies. Our immune response is strengthened when we feel our connection with community by regularly renewing the bonds of belonging we support our ability to remain healthy and whole. This idea of when one is ill, all of us are ill. Or this idea that to be a healing community, it requires all of us. That is what I think it means to sit in this paradox between serving and being served. That we will all be in and out of toggling back and forth between moments in life in which it is our calling to bear the burden of another and to sit with and hold space and care for and love. And then there will be moments where we toggle into a space where we're the one needing that same thing. That is the balance. The role I played yesterday was a role that any one of you would play. It wasn't because I'm a pastor. It wasn't because of a title or it's just because you're friends. You do that same thing all the time. But the truth is, I know I can't carry those two ladies the same way that others of you in the community could. I haven't personally fought and battled cancer. Some of you have. And the way that you could walk with her is much different than the way I could walk with her. I have not been through divorce. It hasn't touched my family. But it has touched many of yours. And your ability to walk with someone through that far exceeds my ability to walk with someone through that. That is the beauty of this, right? Even this week, hearing stories of people within our community rushing up to the hospital to bring a little kid home who's a part of a domestic violence situation and to have that kid stay with them for a couple nights and then to meet up with others of you at a park 
to be the community together and care for the kids so the kid could play with other kids. That takes a community. It takes a village. That is what it means and what it looks like to serve. I want to give you a few reflection questions for this as well. What would it take from you to be a community that responds to need, that embodies the idea that when one is ill, all are ill? I'm not asking what would it take of the community to do that. Because that's easy to just be like, well, I mean, de facto, we will do that, right? But no, what would it take of you? What's your role in it? Healing is a matter of being connected to community. Who is someone you trust enough to hold your story, to walk with you in your current ill? What you're going through, someone in the community can respond to. Find someone to carry the burden with you. And then who are you currently being called to serve and love as a member of the family of God? Oftentimes in the church, when we think about service, we think about helping out a kid's community. Fantastic. We always need people to do that. Or we think about running slides on Sunday morning. Great. We absolutely need people to do that. But serving is also what happens throughout the week and all week long. It's the other six days that matter just as much. It's the way you're serving in your community, in your neighborhood, with your friends, at your place of employment, with your family. All of that matters. Last little part of this story. Jesus uh, grabs the disciples. The text tells us that uh, they were indignant. They were having issues. There was inner turmoil. The rest of the disciples found out that these two had gone off to Jesus and said, let us be at the center of all of it. And they were not happy. And then the text, if you read between the lines, Jesus grabs a little flannel graph board and he sits them down and he's like, hey, let me teach you a little lesson. Let's let, have a little conversation. Let's talk about what it means to be in the kingdom and the difference between being someone who served and being someone who serves. And he goes on to tell him, do you want to be first? Great, then you must be last. Do you want to be the leader? Fantastic, serve others. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be known? Do you want to be popular? Do you want, great, be a servant. He flips the script. The words are radical. The idea is otherworldly, right? Jesus is trying to reorient the disciples to this kingdom posture. Because, see, the whole world around them, it might sound familiar to you, but in Roman times, the world was very binary. So it was either you were in charge or you weren't. You were either the one who owned people or you're the one owned. There was like no other in-betweens. You're the one that's right and everyone else is wrong. It's the culture he lived in. And James and John felt like maybe that's an appropriate way for the church to respond to. Maybe that's how it's supposed to carry out its business. And Jesus is clear that power and dominance is not a leadership model of the church. Right? That self first has no place in the leadership of the church. 
And even beyond that, there's no place in the kingdom of God. You and I are called to serve. You and I are called to be servants. You and I are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It is a posture of humility. It is a, um, a function of saying that I'm a part of something much bigger than myself and beyond my agenda is the agenda of a community, the agenda of a people of faith, and a people of the kingdom. And we have all in unique ways been gifted to serve. Weller goes on to make this statement in closing. Deep in our bones lies an intuition that we arrive here carrying a bundle of gifts to offer to the community. Over time, these gifts are meant to be seen, developed, and called into the village at times of need. To feel valued for the gifts with which we are born affirms our worth and dignity. In a sense, it is a form of spiritual employment. Simply being who we are confirms our place in the village. This is one of the fundamental understandings about gifts. We can only offer them by being ourselves fully. Gifts are a consequence of authenticity. When we are being true to our natures, the gifts emerge. We could go one by one through every person. There are unique gifts in our community. In full transparency, some of those gifts are being used in abundance and others going unused. Regardless of what your gift is, what your passion is, where your gifting and passion and energy are, there's a really good chance that God has also connected it to a very tangible, real need. A person, a situation, a difficulty, something you can fill. God does not haphazardly hand out the gifts, nor does he just want them stored away. He wants engagement. I want to close with these reflection questions. To be a follower of Jesus is to accept the call to serve. Have you accepted this call and how are you seeking to be engaged in the life of service to the community of faith? And remember, I'm not just saying within new community, broadly. I've heard it said you don't volunteer at your church any more than you babysit your own kids. What does this idea mean and how does this alter our understanding of responsibility to the church of God? And then who is someone who models a life of serving well and how can you emulate that person? For me, some of my most profound learnings in faith are simply watching some of you, coming alongside and learning from you. And that is what community is also about, to sit in this paradox of serving and being served. Let me pray. God, we, as in all of these paradoxes, invite you to meet us in the center of it. The center of confusion at times, the center of these tensions between, man, there's days I feel like all I want is for someone to serve me, and days when it feels like the very thing that I must do is serve another. We're called to both and help us to understand and know and have wisdom to know what is needed at what time. 
got all of these other ones, whether it's grief, whether it's prayer and action, whether it's other spaces that we find ourselves caught in the middle on, God, may you give us unique wisdom. May today we walk out of here committed to reflecting on this idea of what it is you're calling us into, and may we embody the values of the kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.